Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Dr. Turek is a professor of theology and chair of Domatic Theology at St. Patrick's Seminary and University. She received her doctorate in Sacred Theology at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Her other publications include Towards a Theology of God the Father, Atonement, Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. Here is your host, Evan Collins. I am Evan Collins. I'm a contributor here at Discerning Hearts, and I'm here with Dr. Margaret Turek to discuss her book, Atonement. So what is the inspiration for you writing this book now? When I was a young lass, a few days shy of my 21st birthday, I was coming off a three-day silent retreat and was ushered into a parlor area amongst the other young women, retreatants. And we, for the first time in three days, were invited, allowed, to speak. So as I was listening politely to my friends, I turned my face toward the friend to my left who was speaking, and my eyes happened to glance. I was looking on the far wall upon which hung a crucifix, and Though initially my eyes rested on my friend, they lifted to see, to behold, the pierced one. And Evan, I don't know why, at that hour, I saw, I'm going to use the the language of vision, of contemplation, I saw Christ crucified, more specifically as the living and dying icon of the Father's love. I realized at that moment that I had been under the influence of a distorted picture of the Father. And that distorted picture of the Father, that flawed image of the Father, was suddenly cleared from my mind. And I saw in Christ crucified the Father who is rich in mercy. We can talk much more about the face of the Father of Forgiving Love over the the course of our conversation, but I need to say that right out of the gate. It was a, a very unexpected blessing that took the shape of a non contrived moment of contemplation. It was a self showing on the part of God through his crucified Son that I didn't coordinate. It took me by surprise, but it brought with it such a healing to the eyes of my heart that thereafter, that was, as I said, a few days shy of my 21st birthday. Thereafter, my life changed course. And the easiest way to trace the new course is in terms like, I soon thereafter changed my major you know, from business, pre-law to 
theology. And I knew I wanted to spend my life, if God gave me that opportunity, to spend my life enabling others to see the God and Father of Jesus Christ, to behold the pierced one and recognize the God who's rich in mercy. And so then I I changed my major, as I said, and I did more than simply look upon God or in the context of schooling. After I graduated from university with a, a degree in theology, I entered a Carmelite community because the Carmelites have designed a way of life and indeed a rule of life that's aimed at enabling, facilitating Carmelites to gaze upon, live their contemplative vocation by gazing upon primarily Christ crucified, the sun on the cross, and to enter into this mystery of divine love, divine and human love, enter into it, participate in it, and come to know it from within, not simply by book learning, but by graced experiential participation. And as you know, Evan, the lineup of the greatest Carmelite saints, from John of the Cross to Therese of Lisieux, they dared to allow God's grace to draw them into the mystery of the cross, experience it from within, know him intimately and glorify him by willingly sharing the mission of Christ to bear the sin of the world, to be co-redeemers with the Redeemer, to be co-atoners with the Atoner, to be beloved sons and daughters in the beloved son. And so the six years I spent with the Carmelites provided me with a tremendously valuable spiritual and theological formation. And I hope you, as a reader of my book, can attest to the fact that it's not merely, this is a book, but it's meant to be more than that. It's meant to be, yes, it has two covers and it's a text, but it's meant to so depict the mystery of the Trinity's love in dealing with sin, such that the Holy Spirit at work in the reader can heal the eyes of our hearts so that in seeing what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do for us against sin will draw us to play our role in this event of love to the glory of God, and to realize our fullest happiness in giving glory to God, in living out our identity as beloved of him, in the face of sin, addressing sin, and dealing with it. Did I answer your question, Evan? (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to have to take a few more years to mine through the whole journey of your spiritual life. Which makes total sense because this is the theme of salvation is what we're talking about here with atonement. And so it's going to deeply permeate every aspect of your life, which is a beautiful thing. 
your book emphasizes the father's love in particular in the atonement. I think it's fair to say that most accounts of Jesus's passion and death primarily only speak about the son and the rest of the Trinity is kind of left out of the conversation in a sense, which is fair in a human way because the son is the one that we see kind of suffering and dying for our sins. But you want to bring in the Trinitarian light of atonement and you get that from the catechism. Um, You state in your book, that's kind of bedrock of theology. It's the primary mystery that all of the truths of our faith flow from. So I wanted to ask you why the emphasis on the father in particular for this book, because I know that you said that you could, there could be a whole nother book written about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And I think you already answered it a little bit from your story because you encountered the father in that crucifix. Yes. I had always understood as a cradle Catholic, Um, my parents sent me to Catholic schools and, and darn good ones. And so there were always crucifixes on the wall. My family always went to, you know, Sunday mass. There's a crucifix above the altar and so on. I I knew of the son's love for me. And I was grateful to the son who loved me and gave himself up for me. Quoting St. Paul. But what I had never sufficiently grasped and so adequately appreciated was that Christ is the son of God. You know, Mark's gospel opens with, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And to speak of a son is always to imply a relationship to the father. And yet it seemed to me in so much of the, now I'm an old woman. So the catechism I received growing up, again, it it could focus on the son, Christ Jesus, but it didn't focus upon him as son, but rather and this is still true, as sort of a God-man. And again, mind you, I know I am alluding to St. Anselm's uh, wonderful treatment on why God became man and et cetera. And I don't mean to dismiss or disparage that term, the God-man, but it isn't a term that's sufficiently Trinitarian. It is God the Son who became man. And he's living out his divine sonship as man. A sonship that is totally defined by, constituted by his relationship with the father. And it's a relationship that starts with the father. Father's initiative. The father is the lover. The son is the beloved. So I realized all the while, once I had this vision, if you will, that healed the eyes of my heart, I realized more and more Jesus the Christ, his profound filial identity that necessitated a deeper recognition of his relation to the Father and his mission as revealer of the Father. As the one the Father sent to bear the sin of the world, Christ is at the same time the one the Father sends to reveal his true face. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And so we must dare to say to see Jesus atoning for sin is somehow of primary importance is to see the 
father, the loving father in his atoning son. Okay. It was as if Evan, with all this stuff, my catechism up to that point and so on, it was as if I use this image. I don't know if it's any good. You can tell me later. But, you know, with all the technology today and people are posting their photos on Facebook or Instagram, whatever, and there's a lot of cropping going on where you crop this or that out of the frame. The even Orthodox catechism, speaking of the cross, it would tend to crop out the father, just like you said. Just And it was so exclusively Christ-centered that the frame, the horizon, in light of which the full frame of understanding the love of God and the work of God for us on our behalf and to his glory, it has to involve all three divine persons. And we had allowed this frame to be cropped, <laughs> to be cropped very narrowly. Even though what you saw in Christ was not false, I'm just saying it was too narrow. Mm. Evan, please feel free to challenge me, you know, or, or correct me, or to make up for what's lacking in my own explanation. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I was going to say is that I think it's a very good image, this um, understanding of cropping the image. And then there's more to the story than what has usually been highlighted in a catechism. And well, the current catechism actually does talk about these things quite well, which is beautiful. I was just reading it beforehand. And even actually, I'm a, currently a youth minister right now is one of, one of the various things that I do. And I was looking at the UCAT and the UCAT actually captures this quite well. I was shocked to see, not that the UCAT wouldn't have anything in here, but I was surprised at the depth of some of these quotes on the side margins. And it had a quote from St. Bernard of Clairvaux that I thought, that you would love. And um, here's St. Bernard. It was not the death that pleased him, God the Father, but rather the will of him who freely died, who through that death abolished death, made salvation possible, and restored innocence, who triumphed over principalities and powers, robbed death and enriched heaven, who restored peace to what is in heaven and on earth and united everything. And I was surprised um, to see that mention of God, the father in there. And I wanted to ask because something that is usually present in the accounts of Christ's atonement and some of the accounts that you're trying to provide perhaps a correction for, or a reframing yourself is an emphasis on the father, but only in the context of divine justice in the atonement. And so often what you read, and maybe this is something you can tease out a little bit for our listeners, because I found this confusing myself, is that the divine justice in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, in reference to the Father, it always says something like, and the Father's justice was appeased or satisfied by Jesus's death on the cross. He did this to satisfy the Father's justice or something like that. What, what do you say about that? I would say yes. But wait, there's more. I mean, at mm. the risk of sounding like an infomercial, there's more. And so, yes, divine justice is in play. The Father and God himself is all that he does, all that he wills, all that he does is, of course, one that bespeaks his integrity, his integrity. 
he's always true to his own beauty and his own goodness. And in as much as he has created human beings to be his living image, an image of his character, of his goodness and beauty, his justice, his mercy, all of that. He created us to be his living image in this world insofar as we sin and corrupt our, what should I say? We ruin our vocational role. Instead of being the face, if you will, that reflects the true character of God, instead of being his creaturely image in this world, sin mars our imaging of God. We become false, counterfeit images of God. God cannot turn toward us, see us in truth, and pretend. He can't pretend that we are not false images. He can't deny that we are counterfeit sons. And so in justice, he has to address this. And we'll talk about how he does that with respect to the biblical revelation. His works of justice, as we'll see in sacred scripture, his works of justice, though, are never separated from love. Again, think of it, he's, he, everything in God is about his integrity. So his justice, it never becomes an independent power, if you will, or even attribute over against or at odds with his love. His work of justice is at its core and ultimately a work of merciful love. I don't know how soon we want to leap into scripture, but let me just say this. Even So when he in justice knows that we have sinned and we are failing to live out our vocation to be his living image in this world, God has to discredit our falsehood. He has to acknowledge our sinfulness. And so he will in justice try to refashion us back into uh, our truth, refashion us, recreate us, reestablish us as his true images, his authentic sons in the world. So justice has a role to play, to be sure, because truth is ever important. But the ultimate aim of God's actions throughout biblical history, is while he is willing to face our sins and injustice judge, that's evil. This is good. This is evil. That is blessed. That is cursed. He speaks the truth, but as he faces sin, his work of justice is one and the same and ultimately aims at a work of loving restoration. We'll return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. 
Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be esteemed more than I that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. We now return to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek. It's not that in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, Jesus isn't just making a get-out-of-jail-free card for us. He's not saying, this is fake money, here's some real money, or let me fake the bank numbers so that your fake money counts as real money or something like that. But instead say we're a fake coin, like a fake pressed coin, Jesus enters into the coin itself and transforms that counterfeit image into a real image. Um, So there's something more happening than like a God's not sleight of handing himself. It's not like Jesus is tricking the father so that we're, we're, we're in, but instead the father so loved us that he wanted us to truly become a part of the son. Yes. Um, and to take image. on his image. Yeah. Our true image that we were made in the image and likeness of God. Yes. God's original uh, will for us. Uh, you know, as you were speaking, I'm mindful of a passage from the first letter of St. John that uh, speaks to this. And that very much influenced me over the last several decades. And as I was writing this book, 
And, you know, it's this one that, that God is love. And, and mind you, St. John is referring to the Father in the first place. God, the Father, is love. And the way we came to know the Father's love is that he sent his son as expiation for sin. So even St. John is not saying in the first place, it's a work of justice and justice alone that, 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 that's behind, that is the motivating factor, if you will, in the Father's heart as he sends the son and, and wills that the son bear away the sin of the world. Rather, as scripture attests, it's, it's the Father's love. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Love consists in this, that God sent his son as expiation. St. Paul in his turn will say something like, when he's, he's talking about how God, God reconciled, and he means the Father, God the Father reconciled us to himself while we were yet enemies. This work of atonement, this work of expiation and reconciliation is from beginning to end a work of love, even as it involves divine justice as well. Mm. It's not either or. It's the both and. Let's tease that out some more because um, Jesus says himself, he kind of lays down the standard. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for his friends. And there's kind of a conception, and I've noticed this amongst all Christian denominations, not just Catholics, our other, our Protestant brothers and sisters as well. There's a conception, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily conscious, but it's kind of practical where people operate under almost an assumption that in the Old Testament, God loved us differently than he loves us in the New Testament or something like that. Or at worst, there's kind of a practical view that God was different in the Old Testament wholesale. And when Jesus comes, now we get the nice loving God. And then you get John's letters where Jesus says, he's all about love and my children, I love you and all these things. Whereas versus the Old Testament, there's what's going on in something like the book of Job or why is God talking to the devil and letting the devil ruin Job's whole life um, seemingly or things like this. How is this an act of love that is happening underneath God's watch in the Old Testament? And I think you're kind of saying what I'm hearing you say is that God's love hasn't changed. His love has been present the whole time because that's who God is, is love. So can you kind of show us now Let's dive in to the Old Testament. That's how you start off your book. You start with the Old Testament. Let's dive in and start to see a little bit how love manifests itself in God's works. So in your book, you outline three factors that you say are integral to atonement. And I'm just going to go over them briefly and then feel free to sprinkle in some insight here and there. But the first one is that God's sovereignly free initiative of love, like so that atonement is God's sovereignly free initiative of love. God is not compelled from any outside force to do this act. It's not like God has been overpowered. He needs to do this. There's no demand being made on God to atone for us. Is that the right way of understanding that? Yes. And even backing up to the situation in which you know God manifests his love, in chapter one of my book, we're focusing in the first place on the covenant, it's God who takes the initiative 
in calling this people without any merit on the part. So again, here's that first thing that Israel didn't earn God's love. It didn't merit God's devotion. Scripture attests to the fact that God shows himself to have freely expressed a passion of love for this people who didn't merit this wholehearted devotion, this paternal kindness and protection. God took the initiative and he did so out of this sovereign freedom. And that first move on the part of God will be unchangeable. It's a hallmark of God's way of being God in history. He will always retain the initiative. And it's an initiative, as you said, that is always expressive of this sovereign freedom. No one has a gun to his head. No one is pulling strings. And this is why, soon enough, the Israelites understood behind this election, behind this choice, is a law radically free. Because this choice of us is pure gift. And the truest, the most beautiful and good gift is love itself. So Israel awakens to its vocation of being called as beloved out of no merit of its own. So it's loved from the start. Yahweh offers his his love in advance of anything Israel had done. That's key. But even though the love is given in advance of anything Israel, Israel, the the covenant partner, the beloved, did, Yahweh's initiatory love always from the start aims at an answering. Though Yahweh always retains the initiative, he aims at a reciprocity, a mutuality with an unswerving commitment. So whatever he initiates, his final aim is to engender an answering response. Um, in this case, a mirroring love, a reciprocal love. God gives to empower the beloved to give back. Am I making sense, Evan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is not an unrequited love. It'd be a really, no. it'd really a very, yes. it'd be a very bad love story. Well, probably one that a lot of people would make nowadays where one person is putting all of this power into loving another and the other does not reciprocate or even can't reciprocate in any form whatsoever. That would not be a good love story. And something that's even more impressive about what's happening is I'm reading through Genesis again right now, and it's Jacob, Israel, you know, the father of these people. He's a trickster. He's a huckster. He's a thief, kind of a liar. Like he, he does a bunch of bad things throughout his time. And he's still a part of Abraham's promise. Like God initiative in pursuing him goes beyond all of those things. It's very strange into our eyes because I think in contemporary times, you know, I I say to myself, it's very normal for people to view love as conditional in a sense of, uh, well, there's certain people that you can love and certain people that you can't perhaps, you know, whereas God, his love is completely free and of itself and us as creatures, 
there's nothing that we can do that makes us worthy of that love. There's no, there's no like, um, oh, you're very good. You're, you're so good. You're so special that um, I'm going to love you instead of the others, because here's all the things you did. Whereas Israel is chosen seemingly for no reason, it seems uh, uh, to us, it seems that there's almost no reason that Israel yes. is chosen whatsoever. And that's so and then, profound. Go ahead. No, you know, going back to that moment when I was just nearly 21 years old and I, I had this, this epiphany, when I said that I, I had been under the influence of a distorted uh, sort of view of God or picture of God, the father, it's precisely that I really, I had believed up to that point that I had to earn the father's love, that I had to become perfect in order for the father to love me. And so it was up to me. It was really a kind of Pelagianism for any of the viewers that understand that error of the past, that heresy of the past, that we have to pull ourselves up by the, the bootstraps and almost somehow save ourselves, sanctify ourselves, be perfect as the father is perfect, but by ourselves and living under that flawed view. I wasn't even fully aware of how kind of spiritually unhappy I was because I was living a lot. And what God led me to see is, no, and this is this will hold true not only in the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel, but also at a higher register between the, the relationship between the Father and the Son incarnate, Christ crucified. All that the beloved does, he does by virtue of being loved first by the Father. Jesus himself, if we allow, if we can, fast forward to the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we know Jesus represents Israel. That's, he's the Messiah, the King of Israel. And the, the two, the Messiah and the new Adam, he's to represent all of humanity. Well, there he is. And he is clear as crystal saying, it's as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The son loves by virtue of the father's love given first, if you will. The son loves, but only and always as one beloved, loved, loved first by the father. And time and again, Jesus says as much. John 5, 19 and 20. The son does nothing of himself. In the end, and he mostly has come to love, right? Because he said, there's no greater love than this, he'll say, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Well, earlier he said, the son does nothing of himself. I don't lay down my life for you of myself. I do, I love, only as I see the father do. And whatever the father does, I do. Likewise. That is, in imitation of the Father, answering paternal love with filial love, responding to paternal love, fatherly love, with obedient filial love. And so that's the the larger frame we're we're trying to put in place here, is it, yes, as we've seen soon, soon enough, we are God created mankind to be his living image in this world. 
and his living image, it can only be a filial one. It's a, an image, it is a the person, the partner of God who stands before the Lord, before God, who's beloved of God first, and the love given by God empowers, engenders a filial love in response. And it's and so what is the beloved doing? Notice the beloved isn't earning this love, but that love is given the beloved in advance. The beloved's role is to open itself fully, to receive the gift of love, to consent to its identity as beloved, and to dare, and it's a daring thing though, to let the love of God, God's love, love divine, Penetrate one, elevate one, transform one to be a living image of the divine lover in this world. Sin then is, is in, a, in a way, Evan, it seems to me, that sin is best understood in the context of this paternal filial relationship or lover-beloved relationship. Sin falls on the side of the chosen beloved in such that sin is the refusal to exist in intimate coexistence with God. It is the resistance to this initiative of free love given in advance. It's to turn our face away from the loving God, to turn our backs to the loving God. And therefore, another way to almost, to ruin our mission, to forfeit our mission to be his living image of love in this world. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Turek and Evan Collins in our next episode. You've been listening to Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek and your host, Evan Collins. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com as well as in the free Discerning Hearts app or on your favorite podcast streaming platform. You can also view this conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. To learn more about the book on which this series is based, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel this worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology with Dr. Margaret Turek.